can turn now to our passage this morning in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's on page 989 if you have one of the Pew Bibles. Again, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, in the midst of all of the voices of our world, All the voices that we take in each and every day, God, help us to be attentive to your voice, to hear from you as you speak in your word. Help us to understand what it is that you have revealed here in 2 Thessalonians 2, that we would understand the truth, that we would not be deceived by falsehood, and that we would live with the hope of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I love studying the history of wars, not because I think war itself is a wonderful thing, okay, but because I think wars are interesting for one reason or another. One thing that is interesting to me is looking back at more uh, old wars, wars that are over 100 years ago. Uh, Wars like the Civil War and the Revolutionary War. And one thing you'll notice when you start studying the earlier wars in at least American history is that people not only died from battle, they often died because of the lack of of sanitary uh, hospital use, of people not washing their hands, of people spreading disease. During the Revolutionary War, in particular, the American colonies, we know, fought for independence from Great Britain. But do you know that both the American colonies and England were fighting against a third army? 
Now, it wasn't a physical army, but it was the army of smallpox, a disease. In the 18th century, smallpox had an incredibly high rate of death for those who contracted the disease. And when you look at the Revolutionary War, estimates of exactly how many people died on both sides of the war are really hard to nail down precisely, but it is largely agreed upon by scholars of that war that more British and American soldiers died from smallpox alone than from battle. The impact, this impacted the American soldiers even more than the British soldiers because smallpox had already been more widely spread in Britain and so the British soldiers had a level of immunity that the American soldiers didn't, but even still more British soldiers died from smallpox than from battle. Smallpox impacted the war more than just through deaths. It also forced infected soldiers to isolate. It kept large numbers of soldiers away from the battlefield. At one point in the battle for Quebec, I think I've mentioned that battle once before in a sermon, yes, there was a time when America invaded Canada, or at least tried to. Um, so during the invasion of Quebec, General Benedict Arnold, before his famous betrayal, estimated at one point that over one third of his army was unable to fight because of smallpox. Over a third of his army. Because of this, General George Washington in 1777 ordered that his army, his entire army, be vaccinated or inoculated against smallpox, which ended up in that case being incredibly successful for the armies of the American colonies. Now, I don't want to bring up bad memories of infectious diseases this morning for all of us, but I want you to, to imagine for a moment that you are a soldier in the Revolutionary War. Imagine what it would be like to be more afraid of dying because the person sleeping next to you in the tent, the person on the same side of the battle as you, gave you smallpox, being more afraid of that than dying by gunshot wound from the enemy. You were far more likely to die from something you contracted from a fellow soldier than dying from the enemy. The point that I wanna highlight with this is that there are not only external threats, there are always internal threats. So far, as we've been going through 2 Thessalonians, we've seen Paul encourage the church to continue in the Christian life, to pursue faith and love and hope in the midst of external opposition to the church. Throughout their whole existence as a church in Thessalonica, they had faced external opposition, persecution, and affliction from those who were outside of them. And we've seen Paul's strategy already for combating the inevitable discouragement of living in the midst of this external opposition. And he, he showed that the solution for this in the Christian life was pointing them forward to the justice and victory and glory that Jesus would bring when Jesus came again. His encouragement that we've looked at multiple times over the last few weeks is that Paul was encouraging them to live in light of the end, to live in light of the end, to fuel the endurance and activity of the Christian life by being heavenly and eternally minded. But now in our passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul shifts his focus 
just a little bit. The return of Jesus remains front and center, center for Paul in this section, but the opposition changes. Not only were the Thessalonians facing threats from outside through opposition, persecution, affliction, the church also faced threats from within through false teaching. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul addresses the same or at least a very similar false teaching that we're going to see in our passage today. And in that passage in 2 Timothy 2, Paul compares this false teaching to disease. He says, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. So like the smallpox that spread through the armies during the American Revolution, the disease of false teaching is far more deadly than external threats. False teaching is more dangerous than persecution. And Paul provides the remedy to this deadly disease by prescribing for them a healthy dose of true doctrine. He gives them a good dose of true teaching, which combats the false teaching that they were facing. So the big idea for the passage this morning is when it comes to the return of Jesus, false teaching produces chaos while true teaching instills confidence. When it comes to the return of Jesus, false teaching produces chaos, while true teaching instills confidence. And I'll be splitting that up this morning for us into two main parts. False teaching produces chaos, and then true teaching instills confidence. But before we dive in, I just have one more thing I'd like to say about this passage. I want to let you know that this passage particularly is a very tricky passage. And that I'm going to have to do a little bit more technical uh, pulling apart of what's going on in this passage than I might usually do. So I want to warn you from, from up front, okay? I'm going to do my best to keep uh, the teaching on this passage simple, understandable, and fairly general. Uh, but there is much in this passage that either we do not know or is disagreed upon to a huge extent, even among good biblical scholars. I think Leon Morris, a commentator on 2 Thessalonians, is right on when he says this about the book, and particularly this passage. He says, this passage is probably the most obscure and difficult passage in the whole of the Pauline writings. Okay? He says, this passage right here, is probably the most obscure and difficult passage in all of Paul's writings. A man who was known for being at points difficult and obscure, right? And he continues, he says, and the many gaps in our knowledge have given rise to extravagant speculation, right? So we want to avoid extravagant speculation about these things. And then he continues, we do not possess the key to everything that is said here. And it is well accordingly to maintain some reserve in our interpretations. So I'm going to do my best this morning to follow this advice, uh, to avoid extravagant speculation, to show some reserve in our interpretations, while at the same time faithfully trying to handle what this text does teach to us clearly about the return of Jesus. So 
with that being said, let's dive into our first point this morning. When it comes to the return of Jesus, false teaching produces chaos. Look with me in your Bibles to verses 1 and 2. First, we're going to see what the false teaching is, and then we're going to look at what the false teaching does, the effects of the false teaching in the life of that congregation. Verse 1 tells us the general topic of the false teaching. Paul says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. So he is addressing a false teaching that is about the return of Jesus and our being gathered together to him. That language should remind us of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul talked about those uh, who are dead being raised and those who are alive being caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4. He's continuing again his theme of focusing in on the second coming of Jesus. And then verse 2 gives us the main issue in the false teaching. He says, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. And here's where he says what the main false teaching is. To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So apparently there were false teachers that had been disrupting the Thessalonian church by saying that Jesus had already returned or that Jesus was going to return maybe tomorrow or or right away uh, upon this teaching. Paul, in his previous letter in 1 Thessalonians, had emphasized the suddenness or the imminence of Jesus' return. And it's likely that these false teachers were twisting what Paul had taught. They were misusing what he had revealed in his first letter. And Paul, though, covers all of his bases on how they may be communicating this falsehood with the church, whether it's by claiming to have a prophecy, that's the reference to a spirit in this verse, someone maybe standing up in the congregation and teaching something that is wrong, that's the reference to a spoken word, or someone writing a forgery, a letter claiming to be under Paul's name or under the name of one of the apostles. And he says, do not be deceived. Be careful what you're listening to. Be careful what you're taking in. And this is good advice for us today in this age. Who are we listening to? Can we trust the people that we're listening to? Are are people being faithful to God's word? What is coming into our ears? What is coming into our eyes and into our hearts? We need to be careful like the church in Thessalonica. And as I've already said, this false teaching is mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament. It's not just an issue that this church was dealing with. In 2 Timothy 4, that passage I quoted earlier, Paul writes, as we've seen, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already come, or saying that the resurrection has already happened. They were teaching that maybe in some secret way or in some spiritual way, Jesus had already returned. They just were unaware of it. They needed to be made aware of the fact that Jesus had already come. The resurrection of the dead had already come. And you know what they say? 
there are no new heresies, only recycled old ones, right? I don't know if you've ever heard that before. There are no new heresies in the church, only recycled old ones. And this issue still pops up today. Just one example for you of this false teaching. The Jehovah's Witnesses originally had a prophecy that Jesus would return in 1874. Guess what happened in 1874? Well, I can tell you what didn't happen. Jesus didn't come back. Jesus didn't return. So guess what they did? It's what people always seem to do when they're wrong on these prophecy things. They updated their prophecy. They said, oh, we we miscalculated here. So they recalculated. Then they said Jesus was going to return in October of 1914. Okay, guess what happened in October of 1914? Or again, guess what didn't happen in October of 1914? Jesus didn't return. So they did again what they tend to do. They adjusted their prophecy, but this time they adjusted their prophecy to say that Jesus actually did return in October of 1914, but that his return was just an invisible return, a return that none of us really saw or noticed, but he really did come back in 1914. And so we shouldn't expect Jesus to return again. And again, this is contrary to the New Testament in so many ways, one of which being that the return of Jesus in Paul's letters is clearly a visible thing, clearly something with trumpet sounds. People are going to see him. It's not going to be this hidden secret. Oh no, maybe just slipped in and we didn't see it. Jesus came back. But we see this in so many other places. There are other theologians uh, who teach, uh, some who teach that everything that is predicting the return of Jesus in the entire New Testament was fulfilled completely and utterly in AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem, and that we don't have a second return of Jesus to look forward to. Again, that is a dangerous teaching to say that Jesus has already come. He's not returning again. But why is this sort of teaching so dangerous? Why do we need to be aware that people teach these things? Well, Paul highlights two results of this teaching in the beginning of verse two in the life of the church in Thessalonica. First, he says that this teaching had the potential to cause them to be shaken in mind. So William Hendrickson, one of my favorite New Testament commentators, says that the idea here is of the rolling swell of the sea, shaking a boat and ripping it free from its anchor or from its mooring. And he says this teaching was causing them to be ripped away from what is true, from their anchor. He even says it caused them to to lose their minds, caused alarm. That's what we see the second cause. They were alarmed. They were afraid. It caused panic. It caused distress and disorder in the church. And this makes perfect sense when you remember that for Paul, the return of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead is the great hope of the Christian. Read 1 Corinthians 15 about Paul's hope in the resurrection of the dead in Christ. It's that reality that he had just pointed to for these Thessalonians to encourage them in the midst of their affliction. Jesus is coming. So to say that Jesus has already returned, that the resurrection has already happened, and yet they're still living in affliction, still living in this world that's fallen by sin, that's to cut the very lifeline of Christian hope. It's to take away the very thing that is meant to keep us living in the midst of sin and pain and suffering. He's saying you don't have that hope anymore if he's already returned and all of that has already come. 
This is terribly dangerous. And it makes sense that it would distress the Thessalonian church. We need to see that false teaching about Jesus' second coming has a disproportionately large capacity for disrupting the Christian life. It's an area that calls for special care, for biblical clarity, and for a lack of speculation. So Paul's call to this church in the midst of this false teaching, he says, do not be quickly shaken or alarmed. He encourages them in this, and he does this by providing them the true teaching about the return of Jesus. Again, he combats false teaching with true teaching. And this hits our second point this morning. When it, reco- when it comes to the return of Jesus, true teaching instills confidence. When it comes to the return of Jesus, true teaching instills confidence. When it comes to eschatology, the doctrine of the last things, proper Right eschatology should not produce fear and anxiety for believers. Now, I need to include that, those last two words there, for believers, because proper eschatology should produce fear for those who are enemies of Christ. As we already saw in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So there clearly is something to be afraid of if you are not in Christ, through faith, but for believers, proper eschatology should not produce fear and anxiety. And if it does produce fear or anxiety for you, it is either because you are not understanding it correctly, and you have the right doctrine, but you're not applying it to your heart correctly, or you're just mistaken about the return of Jesus. Christians can sometimes have this tendency to just absolutely lose our minds when we think that the end is coming. Oh no, the end times are here. What are we going to do? Right? No, it should take away fear, not produce it. And if our primary, I think, internal posture towards the state of our world, toward the future of our world, which is wrapped up in what scripture says related to eschatology, if our internal posture towards the state of the world and the future of our world is primarily one of fear, then we need some reorienting in our doctrine and in our hearts. So this is why Paul re-anchors them here in the true teaching. Look with me to verses three and four. This is where we start getting into some of the, the tricky, obscure parts of this passage. He says, let no one deceive you in any way, in this warning there, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. The essence of his argument here is Jesus can't have returned yet, because there are certain things that must precede the return of Jesus. Okay, he's saying, if these things haven't happened, then Jesus hasn't come. And he points to two things in our passage this morning. First, the rebellion. And second, the revealing of the man of lawlessness. These are what many theologians call signs of the times. If you've ever heard that phrase, signs of the times. There are certain things that mark out the time before Jesus' return. Some of these are things that we should expect to see throughout the entire uh, age preceding Jesus' return. Everything between 
his resurrection and ascension and his return. Some of those signs mark out qualities of that entire space of time. And some of them are things that will increase as the day of Jesus' return draws nearer. Cornelis Venema, a professor at Mid-America Reform Seminary, I think has maybe written the most helpful and clear book on eschatology, at least that I have ever read. Highly recommend it to you, although it's a little bit heavy and dense at points. It's very clear. He help, he's really helpful here. He splits up the signs of the times into three categories. Signs of God's grace, signs of judgment, and signs of opposition. Okay, three kinds of signs. Signs of God's grace, signs of judgment, and signs of opposition. All three of these signs are found in Jesus' teaching in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 through 14, as well as throughout the rest of the New Testament. First, signs of God's grace. The major sign of God's grace that precedes the return of Jesus is the preaching of the gospel to all nations. See this in Matthew 24, 14, when Jesus says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The New Testament has a strong focus and emphasis on the triumph of the gospel through its proclamation to the world. And we should also have that same sort of focus and optimism about the work of the gospel in the world. Then we see second, that there are signs of judgment. In Matthew 24, Jesus mentions wars, rumors of wars, kingdoms rising up against kingdoms, famines, earthquakes. And he calls these the beginning of the birth pains. These signs are meant to be constant reminders of the judgment against the world because of sin when Jesus returns. So these are things that he says are going to take place throughout this entire period before Jesus returns. And they're reminders of the sin of the world and God's judgment. We can't say all that God is specifically doing in the world when any of these disastrous things happen. We can't say Every time there's an earthquake, therefore, the people who died in the earthquake were terrible sinners. But generally, when there is earthquakes and we see these things that disrupt humanity, it's a reminder of the general fallen nature of our world and God's judgment against sin. It's a foretaste of what is yet to come. And then lastly, there are signs of opposition. These signs include apostasy, people walking away from the faith, persecution, false teaching, and an increase of lawlessness. Jesus mentions all of these as well in Matthew 24. And these signs particularly are said to get worse and worse as the return of Jesus appears. And they are meant to be signs for us of an ongoing battle between the powers of good and the powers of evil. An ongoing battle between Christ and the devil. And that is a battle that will one day be finally done away with when Jesus returns. So they are signs of this battle. They're a reminder that Jesus has not yet come and fully and finally defeated the powers of sin in the world. The reason I bring up all of these, the sign, these three types of signs, signs of God's grace, signs of judgment, and signs of opposition First is to remind us to have a balanced view of the present age and the return of Jesus. We ought to have an emphasis that is 
matching the biblical emphasis of our present age. So first, we shouldn't have uh, an overly pessimistic view of the present age, right? We shouldn't just focus on opposition to God while forgetting the fact that he has also promised that the gospel will go out through the world, that we should have great optimism about the work of evangelism, that the power of God will be at work in the gospel, that the spirit of God will convert people, that God will draw all of those who are his to himself. That calls for optimism. But we should also avoid a type of triumphalism that teaches that things are only going to get better and better and better. And the church will practically eliminate all lawlessness and persecution in the world before Jesus returns. It's possible, I think, to be optimistic about the triumph of the gospel while also affirming the opposition to Jesus that will remain and only get worse as Jesus returns. Those two things are not completely uh, in opposition to each other, that they cannot coexist. So we should have optimism about the gospel. Well, we should also have a realistic view about suffering and persecution. Jesus promises that we will have trouble in this life, but he is also the Jesus who has given us the great commission to go and bring the gospel to the nations. Some theologians probably would accuse me of not being optimistic enough in my eschatology at this point. But again, my response would be that our goal should be to be precisely as optimistic as scripture tells us to be. We should be as optimistic as scripture tells us to be. So the reason I bring these up first, to help us have a balanced view of this present world, but also second, to help us get a better idea of these specific signs that Paul is reminding us about in this passage. The two signs, rebellion and the man of lawlessness, guess which category of signs that those fit into? They fit into signs of opposition. Okay, so these are signs of that ongoing battle that is, that is going on in our world. So let's look at the two of these. First, the man of lawlessness, also called the son of destruction. So who is this? Right, that is the one question everybody wants answered when they read this text. Who is the man of lawlessness? Tell me. Well, first, I would say he's the same person as the Antichrist in 1 John 2.22. You'd say, well, then who is the Antichrist? Well, he is a future person who sets himself up against God. You see that in verse 4. He opposes God and any God or object of worship. He sets himself up at the temple. He proclaims, I am God, right? He sets himself up against God. And he's called lawless because he opposes what is right and promotes what is evil. You say, okay, I get that general idea, but who specifically is the man of lawlessness in the Antichrist? Do we have any idea who this specifically is? I don't think we do. I don't think we know who the Antichrist is. Many people have tried to figure this out, but again, remember, we need to avoid having undue speculation about passages like this. Tons of people have tried to figure it out, but the fact that verse 6 particularly tells us that he is restrained now and won't be revealed until his time should cause us to be hesitant about saying that we know who he is. One day it will be clear, but I doubt that that day is yet this day. But what we do know is what verse 7 tells us. It says at the beginning of verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. 
Even though we don't know, know who the man of lawlessness is or the Antichrist is, we know that that same spirit of opposition to God, people claiming for themselves the authority of God or that they are God who oppose what is good and promote what is evil, that that is already at work in our world. And it has been at work in our world. It's the same thing we see in 1 John 2, I think, where it says there is an Antichrist who will come, but there are already many antichrists who have come. There is a man of lawlessness who will come, but there is already the spirit of lawlessness at work in our world. The second big question then is what is restraining the man of lawlessness in this passage? And again, I think the most responsible answer is we don't know. And I hope this isn't disappointing to you. You're hoping to get all these great eschatological answers. And I'm just saying, we don't know. We don't know. People have guessed and they've guessed things all over the spectrum. Good things, bad things. Some people have said it's the gospel, the Holy Spirit, government, an angel, Satan. Like it's literally across the board, people guessing what is restraining. And I don't know. You might have a guess. I don't know. But I think the thing we need to not ignore is verse five. Verse five says, Paul, Paul tells the church here, do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? Paul assumes that they have information that he gave them in person, that he is referencing here. And we're kind of tempted, I think, here to ask, well, Paul, could you fill us in a little bit? Like, could you tell us what you told the Thessalonian church? Because you're assuming this knowledge that they have, but then you're not telling us what that knowledge is. And I think we need to be okay with that. If there is something that God has chosen in his wisdom is better for us not to know, then we need to be okay with not knowing it. We can say the Thessalonian church knew, but we don't. That's okay. So the first sign of opposition, the man of lawlessness. The second sign of opposition is rebellion in verse three. And the Greek word here is the only reason I'm referencing this because you will know exactly what English word we get from it. The Greek word is apostasia. Okay. It's where we get the word apostasy. So this isn't just the idea of people fighting against God, but it's people also who know the truth, who are turning away from God and are rebelling or mutiny, right? It's a mutiny against God. And the fact that this passage refers not just to an apostasy, apostasy, but the apostasy or the rebellion means that this is likely a specific season before Jesus returns that is marked by large numbers of people being deceived and turning away from God. And I think the best way to understand this is that it coincides with the revelation of the man of lawlessness. We see that in verses 8 through 12, I think makes this connection for us. Verses 8 through 12 speak about the lawless one's attempts to deceive. He will have power, false signs, wonders, trying to get people to believe what is false. Point here is he's going to be a counterfeit Christ, a counterfeit prophet. Jesus warns about this. Matthew 24, 5, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will lead many astray. Matthew 24, 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. We know it is not possible for them to ultimately lead astray the elect, but there will be false Christs, false prophets who are seeking to deceive. And we see here the outcome of those who then are deceived, that they end up being hardened by God himself in their deception and end up being condemned. This is a hard passage. We have to be really clear on what this is teaching, what is meant by the hardening of God. I think it's helpful to see that there's an order in this passage. There's an order to how these things happen. First, 
they refuse to love the truth and be saved. And I don't think this is just truth in general. The reference to being saved means this is primarily a rejection of the truth of the gospel and of Jesus, a rejection of salvation. And then second, they are, because of this, they are then deceived by the lawless one into believing what is false. And then lastly, therefore, God hardens them in their delusion and they are condemned. So it's important to see that in this passage, God hardens those who already persistently reject the gospel. Sinclair Ferguson, I think, puts this very well and clearly for us with an example. He says, a persistent refusal to look will lead to a permanent inability to see. A persistent refusal to look will lead to a permanent inability to see. It's kind of like when I was a kid, I loved crossing my eyes and doing that. You know, the classic statement that people say when you cross your eyes, don't do that too long. They're going to stay that way, right? Your eyes are going to get stuck like that, okay? It's kind of the same idea. Okay, if you persistently do this thing, you're going to get stuck in that. A persistent refusal, we could even say to believe, will lead to a permanent inability to believe. Now, I know this is a lot of information. Okay, I've been diving into, as as Leon Morris said, one of the most obscure passages in the New Testament. But let me wrap this up together with two applications for us. Two big things that I want you to take away. First, hold fast to the word. Hold fast to the word. In Paul's age, just as in our age, there are people and there are forces that seek to deceive, to unsettle Christians, to draw us away from the truth. And Paul's solution to this for the Thessalonians, again, was to remind them of what was true, what he had taught them. He calls them back to the apostolic testimony. And guess what? We have the apostolic testimony today in the scriptures of the New Testament. We have everything that we need now to combat false teaching in the world and in the church in the word of God. So let us know the word. Let us study it well. Let us test everything by the word so that we are not deceived. And then second, I believe most importantly in this passage, hold fast to Jesus. Hold fast to Jesus. Despite the great apostasy, the the rebellion, the deceptions of the man of lawlessness and of Satan, Paul has hope for the Thessalonian church. Remember, amidst all of this talk about apostasy, false teaching, Paul's goal here is not to cause anxiety and fear. His goal is to relieve anxiety and fear. And our passage gives part of Paul's answer for his hope for them. The passage next week that Josh is preaching on continues to fill out his thought about why he has hope for this congregation in the midst of all of these things. But there's one key line in our passage today that ought to draw our eyes and ought to draw our attention. The one verse that I have yet to reference, verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Guess what? Don't be afraid when the lawless one is revealed. Yes, he's coming, right? Why? The lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Yes, we live in an age that is marked by lawlessness. Yes, many will fall away and be deceived. Yes, 
the man of lawlessness himself will come. But Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And the coming of Jesus means the full and final victory and triumph over Satan, the man of lawlessness, and all of God's enemies. So we shouldn't be quickly shaken or alarmed, first and foremost, because all things are driving toward a guaranteed end and conclusion in Jesus. What makes you fearful in our world? Of what are you afraid? Is it a government? Our government? A different government? A power in the world? A cultural movement? A false religion? Unfaithfulness in the church? What makes you afraid? This is where we should see the purpose of the signs of opposition. The purpose of signs of opposition to Christ, his rule, and his people is again that they are signs of a battle. They are signs of a war. And they remind us of this war not to frighten us, but to also remind us that we know the outcome of the battle. We know who is going to win. And so when we see the battle raging, do not let it cause fear and anxiety. May it cause confidence in Christ. Again, Cornelis Venema says this so well. Speaking of the signs of opposition in our passage here, he says, like other signs of opposition to the cause of Christ, the sign of the antichrist or man of lawlessness is a sign not of defeat, but of sure and certain victory for Christ and his people. Not for one moment should the church fear that Antichrist will be able to frustrate the fruition of God's purposes in Christ. False doctrine leads to fear, trembling, and alarm. True doctrine leads to confidence and steady-handedness in the Christian life. So Christian, find hope. Find hope and find it in the right place. There will be many false Christs who offer a counterfeit way of salvation and deliverance from the evils of our world. But there is only one Savior. And there is only one place that our eyes must remain fixed on Jesus. So keep your eyes fixed on Jesus in faith, looking to what he has already accomplished in his victory on the cross and in his resurrection. And keep your eyes up and keep your eyes forward to our one true hope. Jesus' victorious return and our being gathered to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark utterly about the things that are to come, but that you have revealed in your word exactly what it is we need to know. As much as we need to know, not more and not less, uh, to help us to live confident lives, confident and faithful, knowing what Christ has done and what Christ is accomplishing in the gospel and what he has promised to do upon his return. God, keep us from fear. Keep us from anxiety and instead fill us with faith and the truth of your word that we would live for you and for your glory in this world. Amen.